Dr. Cyril Wecht is perhaps best known as a commentator for CNN, NBC, and ABC News. His medical and legal expertise is frequently consulted in cases that attract national attention. Dr. Wecht's expertise is sought because he's a former president of both the American Academy of Forensic Sciences and the American College of Legal Medicine. He has personally performed over 14,000 autopsies. Dr. Wecht is the author of Mortal Evidence, currently in bookstores. It's a fascinating look at some of the cases that have intrigued America, including the notorious Sam Shepard case, the John Benet Ramsey murder, and the tangled matter of Orenthal James Simpson. He's here to give us a look at Mortal Evidence and tell us about a conference he's hosting next month at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. This event coincides with the 40th anniversary of the assassination of President John Kennedy. Dr. Cyril Wecht, welcome to Radio Parallax. Uh, thank you, Doug. I appreciate your inviting me. It's nice to be with you. Well, America's fascinated by the science of forensics these days. As CSI gets crime scene investigations, a big TV hit, and numerous cable shows such as Medical Detective focus on what you do. Uh, why do you think forensic sciences have suddenly captured the public's attention? I can tell you uh, that obviously it's because of the drama. It's because of the fact that when you talk forensic science um, and its application mm, to matters that are occurring every day somewhere in America, then you're talking about the things, uh, for better or worse, that uh, turn people on emotionally, <laughs> viscerally, uh, mm -hmm. intellectually uh, to uh, deal with a challenging murder mystery. As we sit and talk right now, Doug, uh, got a body here of a young woman found uh, in one of our rivers, uh, wrapped in a blanket, duct tape around her mouth uh. and so on. Look, uh, we gotta, we're going to identify her. Mm -hmm. We're going to find out um, who she is, how long she's been there, where she came from. We're going to determine uh, the cause of death. Um, we're going to do uh, the autopsy, uh, microscopic studies, toxicological analyses. We're going to work with the law enforcement people, trying to find out then uh, how this may have come, come about. We'll then have an inquest, uh, and we'll get testimony, and then we'll go to court and so on. Just an example of, um, of what we deal with now. Obviously, most cases, <laughs> I guess we should be thankful for that, are rather perfunctory. Uh, most cases are pro forma medically, turn out to be natural uh, deaths, uh, heart attacks, and so on. The point is, one doesn't know what it is going to be. In the last week, how much we've been reading about Princess Diane, you know, some cases never die. And then we've got our John F. Kennedy uh, case that um, we'll be dealing with at our conference, and I've been talking about uh, so much uh, uh, in the last uh, several days, and we'll be talking about so much more. What are some of the more landmark science breakthroughs in recent years that have really helped forensics? Well, obviously, uh, the uh, most revolutionary and one with which everyone is familiar is DNA. What DNA has done for law enforcement, for forensic science investigation, is truly, truly uh, incredible. A lot of um, changes have occurred in the field of radiology, CAT scans, MRIs, uh, PET scans. Sure, um, very precise. Now, you know, so these things yeah. now applied in our field, uh, very, very important. Chemistry, serology, immunology, all of these things have helped um, to, to expand and to um, improve um, the application of forensic sciences. Remember, we don't deal only so, with murders. Right. How about product liability? Sure. How about medical malpractice? Sure. How about wrongful death? You get involved in all those.
Mortal Evidence discusses the Sam Shepard case. Yeah. In 1954, Shepard, mm -hmm. a physician, was convicted of killing his wife. This case was the basis for The Fugitive, a popular TV show in the 1960s, and a more recent movie with Harrison Ford. Tell us a little bit about that famous case. Um, I became involved in the case, and um, uh, I guess about three years or so ago, uh, when Sam Shepard's son attempted to obtain um, uh, some remuneration from the state of Ohio uh, for the wrongful incarceration of his father. And that is based upon an Ohio statute, and most states have similar statutes um, wherein somebody, or if that person dies next of kin, then they can sue, eh, think of it as monetary damages, for the um, wrongful incarceration. Could I mention, too, at this point, that, that this, is, this is a famous case as well, because it was argued before the Supreme Court by uh, F. Lee Bailey, yes, yes. that uh, because of the pre-trial publicity, Dr. Shepard had not exactly. received a fair trial. Yeah. It was horrible. Uh, Sam Gerber, who was the coroner then of Cuyahoga County, Cleveland, um, and his uh, uh, close friend, who was the owner-publisher of the Cleveland uh, Plain Dealer, uh, man, did they do a number, <laughs> and, and you're quite right, and that proved to be the basis for the overturning of the conviction. However, he had to go to trial again. Yeah. And in that trial, then F. Lee Bailey uh, um, represented him, and that was a real defense, and he was acquitted. You, put, you mentioned in, in Mortal Evidence that the coroner more or less came into the, the crime scene, looked around and said, well, it looks pretty obvious like the doctor did it. Let's see if we're going to get a confession. I, I knew <laughs> Sam Gerber uh, personally, and uh, he was a little tyrant. Uh, if you ever... Uh, known someone with a Napoleonic complex, you know, that five foot uh, three, five foot four guy in a powerful position and so on. Uh, he was a doctor with a GP, no training in pathology. He got uh, one of those law degrees from what we used to call Match Cover U, <laughs> years ago in the back of uh, Match Covers, those paper uh, matches. They, uh, you know, you wrote in and you got a law degree. Um, and he uh, got away with... Uh, got away with murder. The office was a good office because he had strong people there, but he ran it and he influenced them and a lot of times not for the better. I guess you weren't, you say you weren't surprised in the book to find that the jury decided that no, Sam Shepard was not wrongfully incarcerated. He was... The reason I wasn't surprised is because, and, and polls have shown this, that when you leave Cleveland, even the rest of Ohio, and when you go to other states, the overwhelming majority recognized that there was a grave injustice. Cuyahoga County still is uptight because it was their case, you yeah. see? And yeah. it's a matter of pride and principle and a source of embarrassment. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why that case uh, never should have been tried in Cuyahoga County, but there wasn't sufficient basis uh, to move it to another part of the state. In Mortal Evidence, as well as in your previous book, which I enjoyed a great deal, Cause of Death, you point out something very interesting, that uh, trials are about advocacy, following the rules of evidence, proving specific allegations and meeting certain constitutional requirements. Trials are not necessarily, you say, about seeking and determining the truth. Yep. And um, <laughs> you, in Mortal Evidence, you, you apply this to the case of, of O.J. Simpson. And I, I, you note in the book that you think that, uh, that although O.J. is very likely guilty of two murders, or you, you accept that, yet you feel that in his criminal trial, the acquittal was the correct decision. Yes, uh, uh, that's right. Uh, justice and truth, uh, and any legal scholar will tell you. I know it's hard. It's a hard concept for intelligent people to think, uh, but but uh, they they are different. I would say 95, 99 percent of the time, 
they prove to be one and the same, or that they move in parallel fashion, and if you achieve one, you achieve the other. But there are a small number of cases in which uh, they may be different. In the O.J. Simpson case, um, the way the prosecution handled it, the bungling uh, from the scene, the way in which uh, they abused uh, the process, um, paraded Mark Furman in, uh, lied uh, about uh, what he had uh, done and, and said in the past regarding African Americans and so on. Uh, you know, these were injustices of which they were guilty. And uh, so uh, was justice served um, if the cops lied and they uh, went over uh, the wall at 5 o'clock in the morning saying that they were concerned about his safety, which was a damn lie. Anybody would recognize that. And if Van Adder carried a tube of blood around to something that he'd never done before and turned in six and a half cc's, whereas the male nurse who gave it to him said there had been eight cc's, and then you got a drop of blood on the sock and a drop of blood on the on a car. Uh, can you raise legitimate questions about, uh, gee, you know, where'd the drop of blood come from? So what I'm saying is, um, yeah, uh, what, what the truth probably is that, that O.J. was involved, uh, I believe, by the way, with the second person. There's no way that he could have committed those crimes all by himself. But, but uh, then um, justice is one thing, and, and, and truth uh, in God's uh, eyes um, is maybe another. Sure. In both cases, you accept that the right decision was uh, was arrived at. Yes. yes. In, in in cause of death, uh, you just much the same issue. You talked about that a trial is not a search for truth. In the case you mentioned was Sirhan Sirhan, the murder of Robert Kennedy. On this show, we previously heard from um, uh, ex FBI agent uh, William Turner and yes. uh, Lawrence Teeter, Sirhan's attorney. Yep. Uh, you agree with uh, both these men that although Sirhan fired a pistol at RFK, there's no doubt about that, he surely did not kill him. Can you tell us tell us why you agree? There's definitely a second gun. The shot that killed Robert Kennedy, um, number one, had a slightly forward trajectory entering in the right mastoid area, that is behind the right ear, and moving forward. And number two, more importantly, that shot was fired from a distance of one to one and a half inches away from Robert Kennedy's head. There's nobody in the world that has ever placed, to my knowledge, Sirhan's muzzle one inch away from Bobby Kennedy's head. We're speaking with physician and lawyer, Dr. Cyril Wecht, one of the country's most distinguished forensic pathologists. So I presume you, you support, uh, along with Lawrence Teeter, calls for a new trial for Sirhan. Well, sure, sure, sure. Mm. You know what? You see, what I just said, there are people out there listening to you saying, come on, what kind of nonsense is this? Where was the jury then? Well, the fact of the matter is, and this is something that, you know, nobody except people in the, in the uh, case or have studied it uh, realize that this statement that I just made, this finding, this conclusion, this forensic scientific fact was never presented to the jury. Yes. Noguchi did set it forth in the grand jury. Tom didn't hide it or hold it back. But in the trial, obviously the prosecution wasn't going to run with it. And Grant Cooper, who was supposedly an experienced defense attorney, I don't understand how did he miss it. Was he bought off? Was he uh, simply old and over the hill? Uh, was he so tied up with saving Sarian's life and pursuing the diminished capacity defense, the uh, infamous Twinkie defense that you guys in California have, um, and so on, that he, he never evaluated the rest of the forensic scientific evidence? as possible. I didn't know Grant yeah. Cooper personally, so I, I can't uh, pass judgment. But what I'm telling you, I'm talking facts. I'm not talking yeah. about theory, conjecture. Um, 
or whatever. Um, there's no way that Sirhan's gun was one to one and a half inches away. Right. And I'm talking about more than a dozen board-certified experienced forensic pathologists, including three from the United States government, yeah. who all agreed that that was the distance of the shot. Now, how do you handle that? Would have been interesting if they perhaps would have offered the the argument in the court of law that Sirhan it was was actually innocent instead of saying, "Oh yeah, we stipulate he did it." Now we're just going to argue about his state of mind. Yeah, that's uh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I would refer anyone who wants to know more about that to your to your book, Cause of Death, Chapter Two: Evidence for a Second Gun, which is a very good summary of all this. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. But let let's back up one chapter to Chapter One in your last book, The Great American Murder Mystery: The Assassination of President uh, John Kennedy. Next month, you'll host a conference at Duquesne University on this topic, and it's going to include most, I think, provocatively, Senator Arlen Specter. That's right. The first time, Doug, that the senator has ever agreed to participate in the program simultaneously with uh, Warren Commission uh, critic researchers. Can we, for some of our listeners maybe that aren't as familiar with the case, I mean, it is, it is moving, oh, yeah. we sure. are a college audience, too. Can you, can you tell us how it was back that... Uh, Senator Specter, at that time he was an assistant district attorney in Philadelphia, how he basically single-handedly saved a floundering Warren Commission in 1964 from having to conclude that there were two weapons that were yes. used in Dallas. The Warren Commission had already uh, concluded in their minds that Oswald was a sole assassin because that's the way it was presented to them. The case really, in their minds, was over. They had just had to wrap it up. So, well, what's the problem? Oswald did the shooting. Well, okay, now up comes the Abraham Zapruder film, and the film's examined uh, by the Bell Howell and FBI labs and determined that 18.3 frames of the film strip move through the camera per second. You take each little tiny uh, film, you blow it up uh, 8 by 11, 11 by 15, and you study the shooting of the uh, governor and the president uh, at 1 18th second intervals. Right. Okay, so then you see that. And Conley is hit, uh, and it's one and a half seconds after Kennedy. Fine. Now they got the alleged murder weapon, this bolt-action, non-automatic uh, manicure Carcano, and they get the finest, fastest marksman they can get, the FBI, military, and they determine that it takes 2.3 seconds from shot to shot without allowing time for repositioning, re-aiming at a moving target. Just to work the bolt. Just, just to work it, just to work right. the mechanism. Right. Well, then how can this be? <laughs> Oswald, who was a lousy marksman, flunked his first test in the U.S. Marines, how does he come to get these shots off? So they got a real problem, a real problem. And that's when uh, Specter scratches his head and says, hey, I got it. Uh, the same bullet that went through Kennedy then continued on through Conley. We, we, should, we should interject perhaps at this point that prior to this, 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 this discovery of the fact there was a 2.3 second uh, timing problem. Prior to that, the FBI's official conclusion was the two men were hit with an interval between them. That was John Conley, uh, the other victim that day's conclusion watching the film, the conclusion of the Dallas doctors, the conclusion of the autopsy physicians. Everyone, it seems, in the universe was on the same page on this until they discovered there was a problem with that scenario. So you got a shot fired from the sixth floor window, and yet it moves upward 11, 12 degrees. It's moving then to the left. You expect it to go downwards, of course. Downward. Yes. And, and, and continuing to the left, it stops in midair, it turns to the right about 18, 20 inches, slams into John Conley behind the right armpit, goes through his chest at a downward angle of about 27 degrees, pierces the right lung, shatters and destroys four inches of the right fifth anterior rib, exits from a level below the nipple, now comes and, and makes a sharp upward turn, uh, rising above the nipple, 
where you can see his wrist holding the white Stetson hat on the Zapruder film very clearly, unquestionably above the level of the nipple. So the bullet has to emerge, come upward, slam into the back of the governor's wrist, produces a comminuted, that's a fragmented fracture of the distal end of the radius, one of the two bones coming down from the elbow to the wrist, and in a six-foot-four guy like Connolly, a very dense, heavy bone, shatters that bone, exits from the front of the governor's right wrist, moves now to the downward angle of about 45 degrees, goes into his left thigh, hits the femur, and somehow bounces back out through about four inches of muscle, fascia, fat, and skin, and plops onto the stretcher. And so the stretcher bullet, mm -hmm. the hero of the Warren Commission report, single bullet theory, Commission Exhibit 399, dubbed by me and others, um, I think much more aptly and descriptively as the magic bullet, on the night of the autopsy, when they learned about the stretcher bullet at, at Bethesda when they were doing the autopsy and did not know about a hole in the front of the neck, they said that that stretcher bullet was from the president's back. The next day when they learned about the bullet hole in the front of the neck, now the stretcher bullet was from the front of Kennedy's clothing. It had somehow gone through six, seven inches of soft tissue, moving almost 2,100 feet per second, came out from the front of the neck, looked at the starch, the white shirt, and said, oh, my God, I can't get past that. Just crumped out and dropped down in front of his clothing. So that's where the stretcher bullet was from as of, as of Saturday, November 23rd. And now, five, six months later, when they had to put together the single bullet theory, now then uh, the stretcher bullet is from Governor Conley's left thigh. That's, the, that's, that's unbelievable. Yeah, there's a famous scene in Oliver Stone's movie, JFK, that illustrates some of the unlikeliness of the fact that both men could have been struck by the same bullet. And may I tell you, uh, you'll forgive the boasting, but I'm responsible for that. I um, uh, had gone down there, uh, invited to be a technical advisor consultant, and Oliver Stone is very gracious, very polite, but, but quite firm in telling me that they had already been through eight uh, edited revisions, and uh, that was it. They wanted me to just check for accuracy. Uh -huh. So um, I looked at it. I, I, I begged him because I had already used that uh, scenario before countless audiences, and I knew uh, what a humdinger it was. <laughs> and so that marvelous scene with Costner playing Garrison in the courtroom, yeah. I will uh, take uh, credit for um, uh, having uh, convinced Oliver Stone uh, to include it in his movie script. We should probably, I should put a plug in certainly to, for anyone who hasn't seen that fine movie to go and, to go oh, and rent yes. it. Absolutely. Rent it or own it because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it may not be a historical document, but I think a lot of people might argue it's, uh, it's probably more valid than the Warren Commission. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, he has been pounded and pounded relentlessly. The fact of the matter is it's a great movie. This was the feds at work. This was the news media establishment, the New York Times, and Washington Post defending that portion of the turf uh, upon which they had planted uh, their uh, flags uh, back in 64, buying in. See, you've got to remember, Doug, and this is so important with your young audience, uh, you've got to remember this is pre-Vietnam War. This is pre-Watergate. The yeah. American public, the news media, were not into the investigative um, mode. I'm not saying that there weren't any reporters that ever asked questions, but you did not do these things. People say, my God, how could this have happened? Isn't WEC one of those lunatics and those nuts and conspiratorialists and so on? you got to understand, it was a different America. You, you have been frequently critical of official findings in prominent cases like, like John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy. 
yet you point out in moral evidence that you've been a prosecutor and that you frequently testify for the state in your capacity as a medical examiner. That's right. That's so right. my question is, in, in your estimation, does the right verdict usually get handed down? Uh, the, usually, yes. Oh, yes. Overwhelmingly, yes. Uh, sometimes um, not in the most uh, correct and legitimate, uh, but yes, uh, most of the time. However, uh, Doug, that's not good enough, right? When you talk about execution, when you talk about incarceration for a lifetime mm -hmm. or 20 or 10 years, most of the time is not good enough, is it? And we should never be satisfied. And when you talk about uh, political assassinations and the overthrow of the government, a coup d'etat by the killing of a president, then that must never be permitted to be ignored or forgotten. That is why uh, we continue to pursue this. It's not just a, a great American murder mystery, which it is. It happens to um, get to the very heart, to the core of who we are as a democracy and whether that kind of heinous act uh, can go undercover. Uh, you know, I, I, I think the answer everybody would agree uh, must be no. Well, Dr. Cyril Weck, thanks for coming on Radio Parallax. Doug, uh, thank you very much, and I hope we'll chat again. Look forward to seeing you in Pittsburgh. We're delighted to have brought you Dr. Cyril Weck, the former coroner of Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, and one of the country's most distinguished forensic pathologists. I will be attending his conference at Duquesne University next month, and we'll have a report for you after that. So I've got a couple more books to recommend for you folks. Mortal Evidence by Dr. Cyril Wecht, as well as Cause of Death. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 Davis, Sacramento.